Will you bow your heads? Pray with me. Our great Father in heaven, this is how it should be. Us singing and you being sung to. And this is right. God, you are the only one in the universe that is worthy to be sung to. You're the only one that is worthy to be fully trusted. You're the only one that is truly worthy of love and devotion and our affections. So it is good and it is right that we gather together here today in your presence, before your presence, and we sing songs to you. Songs written about you, whom we've learned about through your word. Your words back to you in song. God, thank you that we can sing to you today. Thank you that we can pray to you now today. That we can come before you. That your presence is here. That your presence indwells your children now through your Holy Spirit. That you draw near to the praise of your people. God, that there is not a ceiling on our prayers as there should be, but that our words go to your throne of grace, that our words come to your ears and to your heart, that you hear your people. We can know, God, that we're not just spouting words to an unknown God, but we are speaking freely to the one true God. And that you love us and you care for us and you want to hear from us and you you want to pour out your love to us. But God, we do not want this time to be one sided. We must hear from you. And God, we ask that you would speak to us through the preaching of your word. Pray your words would not fall on deaf ears, but ears that are wide open. That our hearts now would be softened to your word. That, we, that, that our minds would be changed. You'd, you'd make us spiritually intelligent right now. So that we can understand these spiritual truths. We can accept them as truth. Give us faith, God. Give us faith to believe, to believe what it is that we're hearing. Be glorified, God, and do this. Do this so that you would be glorified and we would have joy for your glory and for our good. And we pray this with a lot of confidence. Not because there is anything in us to be confident in, but because we come to you through our great advocate. We come to you through the only mediator we need. We come to you through and we pray this in the name of your son, who is God and our Christ, Jesus. Amen. Uh, you may be seated. If you've got kids who you'd like to be in class today, you can you can take them back to class right now. I'll be preaching this morning from Genesis chapter 18. I'll read that chapter in its entirety in just a couple minutes. First. Two quick announcements. One is, would like to 
Ask again if there are some of you who call Veritas your church home and you are not serving yet and you uh, love our church and you love Jesus and you love kids. We could use some more help working, uh, working with our children. We've got a couple classes and a nursery that we make available for a portion of our service on Sunday mornings. And uh, we have that staffed with, uh, with people and we, we, could use some more, we could use some more people. Uh, not just looking for a pulse here, looking for uh, godly people. Okay, godly. Uh, you love the Lord and you love children and you could uh, serve them and serve your church family in that way. So if you're willing to do that, willing to get fingerprinted and go through the process, we'd love to, we'd love to have you do that. Uh, so you can let one of the hosts here this morning know, or you can directly contact Lisa Nichols, who oversees that. Uh, you can get a hold of her on the city. So if you want to get on our online network, the city, you can, you can find her there. One other announcement only. This is our midweek service this week. So once a month, the first Wednesday of the month, we have a, a midweek service on Wednesday night at 6.30. So it's the week. I'd love to see all of you out here this Wednesday. We're going through, or we have been going through in 2013 here, uh, Mark Dever's book, What is a Healthy Church? And he points out nine marks of a healthy church. So we've been going through those one at a time, uh, looking at our church, evaluating ourselves, uh, because our goal, obviously, is not just to be um, a self-proclaimed church, but a church that, that is healthy and true and brings God glory and honor. So this Wednesday at 6.30. Uh, it's just about an hour. Uh, kids are welcomed. We don't offer child care, but your kids are welcomed here in, in with us. Uh, and then afterwards, we've got some food and some drinks and stick around and spend some time with each other. So this Wednesday, 6.30. If you're able to come out, that'd be great. So I'm going to read the word for the day. Genesis chapter 18. A rough couple chapters here. Difficult couple chapters. If you have your Bible, please open up. Do not take my word for it. You never know, I might skip a verse or something. And if you don't have a Bible, there's, there's some that are provided for you. In a seat back in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, just take that with you. Genesis chapter 18. This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, Quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and he set it before them. And then he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. The Lord said, 
I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked? Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, for the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. 
This is the word of the Lord. We'll divide this up into two sections. Spend most of our time in verses 1 through 15 and read about the Lord's dealing with Abraham and his wife, Sarah. The second section, verses 16 through 33, will read about the right judgments of God, which will provide us with, for the most part, an introduction to what we'll look at next week in Genesis chapter 19. Let's pray again before we get started. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your word and thank you for giving us your spirit and thank you for giving us preachers. I thank you for the preachers that you've blessed me with. I thank you for the prophets you've blessed me with. I thank you for your word coupled with the power of your Holy Spirit being wielded through godly men throughout history, that we, your people, may learn more about you. So God, with humility, I stand before you and before your people and ask that I may be a mouthpiece for you, that I may preach well, preach in a way that is sound and true, in a way that is full of of right passion and right heat so that your word would do its work by the power of the Holy Spirit and change your people. You would change your people so that we would become clearer image bearers of you. So that you would be more glorified in this world. And our joy would become more full. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So let's go through Genesis chapter 18 again, much more slowly, a few verses at a time, then we'll have dinner together. Verse 1. And the Lord appeared to him. This is obviously Abraham. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So Abraham lives in Mamre, which means fatness. How would you like to live in a town called fatness? Now, fatness, when you see fatness in your Bible, it really means also fatness. P-H-A-T-N-E-S-S. Because at this time... If one was fat, F-A-T, they were fat, P-H-A-T, in that they were wealthy. They were rich. If you had some extra weight, that meant that in in a society and in a culture where food was scarce and difficult to come by and famines were common, okay, if you had enough food to where you had extra Okay, that was a sign to everyone around you of power and of wealth and of riches. So he lives in a very fat place. He lives in a place of wealth. He lives in a place where the the land is giving things up easily to men like Abraham. Okay, this is where he is. And in the time of day, it says that 
something happens to him here. The Lord appears to him and he comes to him in the in the heat of the day. So what that means is this is the, the hottest part of the day, the hottest part of the day. And, and this would be the time of day where you're going to take your your nap. Yes, your siesta. Hey, we're, we're one of the few cultures, right? American culture where we're so busy we're so busy and we have so much to get done that we don't appreciate a good nap. In many cultures in the world today, right, you work hard all morning and then you take some time to rest. There's more than a lunch break. You take some time to rest. Maybe you even fall asleep. And the reason is so that you're rejuvenated, so that you can work hard the, the rest of the day. We're far too busy in our day to stop and, and do that. But here's Abraham. He's 99 years old, and he's taking a nap in the heat of the day. He's sitting under these beautiful oak trees, and he's, and he's resting. I tell my boys all the time, right? This is the, one of those paradoxes. When you're young, you don't want to take naps. When you're old, you want to take naps. I look at my boys, I was like, man. Don't fight me on this. I mean, you're going to seriously regret this when you're older. You're going to wish that you just stocked up thousands of naps. But when you're young, you don't want to take a nap, right? And when you're old, you want to take a nap. When you're young, you, you, you don't want to take a nap, and, and you're always supposed to take a nap. And when you're old, you want to take a nap, and you can never take a nap. I haven't had a nap in 10 years. Longing for a nap. There's going to be naps in heaven. <laughs> Amen. I was waiting. We can move on. He lifted up his eyes, right? He's taking a nap. And he looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. In front of him. This is a very strange, uh, untraditional, this would not be customary, his reaction. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you've come to your servant. And so they said, do as you have said. Abraham is old, he's wealthy, got some power. The custom would have been for these men were visiting to run to Abraham or to bow at Abraham's feet, especially because they're on his turf. They're coming to his home. So when visitors would come by, the custom would be that you would approach okay, the man of the house and you would, as a sign of humility, you would bow down before him. So we're learning that there's something very special about these visitors, evidently something that, that Abraham sees that causes him to react in a very special way. He runs out. Now, he runs out. That's he's ninety nine. He runs out. That's a big deal right there. He runs out. And what does he do? He bows down before them. So there's something very special about these men. And what does he call one of them? He calls one of them Lord. He calls one of them Lord, which, which means master. It's the same thing that Sarah calls her husband Abraham. She calls him Lord. Now, as you look through this passage, you see the word Lord all over the place describing this individual. But what you actually have are two different Hebrew words. Now, if you have an English Standard Version, the way it tips you off to that is sometimes you'll see the word Lord here. And it'll be capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, right? That's what you see in verse 3. And that's what Abraham says. He says, Master. 
But then when you read Moses' description of this individual in verse 1 and 13 and 17 and 19, you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. So what the author is telling us here is that Moses sees this man and calls him Lord and calls him master. And then Moses, who's writing, describes this individual as the Lord, as Yahweh. Yehovah, which is the word that's used over 6,000 times in your Old Testament. It's the word for God. So what we have here, what we have here is God incarnate. Showing up to have lunch with Abraham. That is a big deal. God incarnate. So this is God in the flesh. Now, God is three persons, right? One God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And only one of those persons manifests himself in the flesh and incarnates himself. And that is God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Spirit. It is God the Son. Now, God the Son, will, who has eternally existed, will enter into human history right, in Jesus Christ. Right? Some of you heard that is God with skin on. Jesus Christ will come in the flesh. But what you also have in the Old Testament is that's not the first time that God shows up incarnate. That's not the first time that God the Son comes down and ministers to his people. And this would be an example. So this is the Lord Jesus coming to Abraham's house. How does Abraham respond? The way you should if Jesus comes to your house. You should invite him in for dinner. So if that happens, that won't. But you should invite him in for dinner. Some of you gals would not. He can't come in the house now. The house is a mess. There's nothing in the fridge. I mean, this is Jesus. I'm afraid he can't come in. Don't do it. No. You invite Jesus in for dinner. So this is what Abraham does. And what does he say? He says, listen, um, four things that he wants to do. He says, I want to wash your feet. I want to wash your feet. Um, I want I want you to have some rest. He says, I want you to lay down. This place was known for its beautiful, big trees. He says, I want you to lay down under these trees and I want you to get some rest. I know you're tired from your journey. So before you pass on, I want to wash your feet. You're dirty. Let me take care of you. Let me give you some rest. And then he says, I want to give you some some fuel for your journey. Right. Let me give you a little water. Let me give you a morsel of bread. And so they say, okay. They accept his they accept his invitation, like when Zacchaeus invited Jesus to his house. Okay? They accept the, the invitation. Verse six. What happens next? And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick! Three sayers of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. This verse struck me as humorous. I think Abraham is a Typical guy here. He extends an invitation and then he tells his wife. (laughs) Some of you men who have not been married long enough have not learned yet that you do not do this. I used to do this and make big plans, make big plans, and then tell Kristen what these big plans were. That did not always go over so well, rightfully so. So this is what Abraham does. But these are not just any guests. So you picture he runs into the house, he finds Sarah, and he says, quick. Now, now, why does he do that? Because who is Sarah? Genesis 2.19. Sarah is his helper. 
She is his helper. Abraham knows that if he's going to entertain these three, if he's going to show hospitality, this is not going to go well if his wife is not on board, which is why you men have had to do the same thing. And you've rushed into your house and said, honey, I'm sorry, I should have checked with you first, but some people are coming over and I'd like to give them more than hot pockets and juice boxes, <laughs> which is going to be what we're going to serve, right? So what does he ask her to do? So he asks her to make some cakes. Now, we're not going to belabor that, but a part of hospitality is making cakes. Not one cake, but cakes. <laughs> cakes. You love cake? I love cake. You go into someone's house and they have cakes, you're going to feel loved. You're going to feel loved. Let's read on about this meal. Now, and remember, when we read about this meal, how did Abraham describe this meal? A little water and a morsel of bread. Now, maybe he said that because he wasn't sure if, he was gonna, if Sarah was actually going to be in the house. He says, let me give you a little water and a morsel of bread. And let, me give you a, let me give you a bite to eat. And let's read about the bite to eat. This is ridiculous. Verse 7. So he first he gets Sarah kneading, kneading flour. And then he ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. I don't even know how quick you can do that. Verse 8. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. This is the, the little water and the morsel of bread. Now, you all know that hospitality or many of you know that hospitality can be a lot of work. But for most of us, hospitality is not this kind of work. Here's what hospitality is. Hospitality happens when... When a stranger, uh, let me use the word outsider. Hospitality happens when an outsider is invited into your family for a time. And then when they leave, they feel loved and cared for. That's hospitality. Hospitality happens when an outsider is brought into your family and they leave feeling loved and cared for. If that happens, then hospitality has happened. Hospitality is not this reluctant invitation and then a pointing out of where the freezer is and where the microwave is. That is not hospitality. This is different. Hospitality is, is, and this happens in lots of different contexts. One of the places it happens is in, in your home, in your physical home. And some of you are wonderful at this. Some of you are wonderful. You show great hospitality. And when people are around you, some of you just one-on-one, just -on -one, when you're with somebody, you're just hospitable. In other words, when people interact with you, they feel loved and cared for. Some of you, people do not feel loved and cared for when they interact with you. <laughs> I mean, your eyes are all over the place. They don't even know if you're hearing what they say. And you're, you're, you're quick to just say, I'll pray for you and, and move on to the next person. And they really don't feel all that loved and cared for. But some of you have this gift. Some of you getting, people can spend 10 minutes with you and they feel like your best friends. They feel like they can, they, they can say what they need to say. They feel like they can be open because you're, you're hospitable with outsiders. And some of you, especially some of you gals, you're, you're just wonderful at doing this with, with your home. 
And you'll invite people into your family. And, here, and here's the point, right? You take someone who, who's coming from somewhere else. They're, they're, they're outside of the family. And so they're brought into a context that could be really uncomfortable. Because you got your traditions and you got your, your culture and you've got your ways of life and, and, and the way that you interact with one another. And that's all completely foreign to them. And so it's a new place. It's a new environment. And so that is it's very easy for someone to feel uncomfortable in that. But some of you gals are very good at just being hospitable. And so someone comes in and, and for a period of time, they feel like they're part of the family. That's hospitality. They come in and they feel like they're part of the family. They sit down and they, have, they, they walk through the door and everything looks nice. Everything looks like I mean, my wife is, is wonderful at this. She is wonderful at this. When people are coming to our home, I mean, sometimes days before preparation begins. And the day that they're coming, preparation begins. And people walk through the home and, and things are clean and things are in place and there's this, there's wonderful smell, right? The senses are on and the, the food is cooking and so it's pleasing to the eye and, and you, you, they're welcomed at the door and, and brought in and they're offered something to drink or something to snack on before the meal is prepared. There's good conversation throughout the night. There's fun. There's laughter. When the night's over, maybe they're walked to the door. Maybe they're even walked outside. And, and sometimes there's an embrace. There's kind words that are said. Okay, what has just happened? Someone who was outside of the family has come in and they felt like they're part of the family for a few hours. Now, one of the reasons that that is so crucial and so important and to look at the example of Abraham and Sarah is because we live in a culture with so many messed up families. So you have people who do not know what it is even like to be part of a family. I mean, there are people in their life who they would call their family, but there was not a familial experience there. There was not love. There was not nurturing. There was not compassion. There was not warmth. There was not sharing. There was not giving. There was not selflessness. And so you will have those people into your homes and you will give them an experience of family that they otherwise would not have. You have young people who are getting married and who want to have a family like that and did not have a family like that and, and just frankly don't know how to do it. And they can come in and experience and see and smell and watch and watch you interact with each other and watch you interact with your children and see how you do things and see how you eat together. And they can learn and see things they want to imitate and say, that's how I want my family to be. That's what I want for my life. Well, what has happened there? Someone who's outside that doesn't deserve these things, that isn't entitled to any of these things, but we want to share these things with you. And we want you for a while to feel like this is your home. We'll even say things, right? Like, make yourself at home. Now, lots of times people say that and they don't really mean it. Make yourself at home, meaning uh, I don't know what else to say. But really, make yourself at home. Here's food. Here's drink. If you need something, please let me know. The bathroom's right down there. Uh, would you like to go out and visit the animals? You know, these are things that we say. Things like that. This also happens in the context of a church, doesn't it? As a church, we show hospitality. Because what are we fundamentally? What are we as a church in terms of our relationships with one another? We're a family. We're a family. We are brothers and sisters. That's not a metaphor. It's not saying you're, you're sort of like, just think of brothers and sisters. That's what you know. We're brothers and sisters, blood brothers, blood sisters, united by the blood of Christ. And we all have the same. So we've all, we all were all over the place, right? And there was a good father and he, he, he found all of us as orphans and he adopted us into his family 
as his sons and daughters. So God the Father is over this house, the church, and we are family. We are brothers and sisters. And so what inevitably happens over time? Well, God's not done adopting kids. He keeps adopting more kids. And he doesn't ask you, like, are you okay with me adopting this one? He does not do that. He just adopts them and brings them in. And so what happens is the family is always growing and new people are coming in. When those new people first come in, they are outsiders. Now, how many of you have been to a church and it has been a very uncomfortable experience because you're nervous driving there? You're nervous the first few minutes there? You're just praying they don't have a meet and greet time where they have you stand up and give you a rose or something? And it's brutal. It's painful. Some of you just want to sneak in and sneak out. Some of you want like 100 people to come and hug you. Some of you want to be invited out to lunch. You have all different desires and things that, that you have. But the goal is for the church family to be hospitable. To be sensitive to the people who are coming in. And to say, listen, you're going to come in. You're going to spend a couple hours with us. I can see that we don't know you. But we want you to feel like, at least for a while, you're part of the family. We want you to feel like you're, like you're home. Okay? Our home is your home. So this is how we do things here. This is how we work. And you have any questions? And uh, I'm available if you need anything. We're here to serve you and love you. That's hospitality. Or we have a deacon, Marina Morrow, who oversees our hospitality here. It's actually a ministry of the church to ensure that we're being hospitable to our people. And she's a great person to run that because when she gets, once in a while, she'll get word from somebody else through somebody else that someone came and they just didn't feel all that welcomed and all that, that loved here. And do you know what that does to her? It just wipes her out. It just wipes her out. Why? Because she wants you all to feel welcomed and loved like you're part of the family. So do you see that that's what's happening here? It's a great example. It's a, it's a lost art. It's a lost art in our culture. Okay, but to sit around and share a meal together and extend hospitality. And look at the characteristics of this. I mean, the first thing we see is this is this is a lavish meal. I mean, I've seen some lavish meals, but this is a lavish meal. She's she's making cakes from scratch. And I think it's beyond like what we mean when we say from scratch. <laughs> she's she needs flour. Look, it's not N E E D S. Like I need some flour. <laughs> it's K N E A. I don't even know what that I don't even know what that kind of kneading is. I think it involves this. But she's like working the flour or something. I don't even know what that looks like. That's what she's got to do to make some cakes that Abraham springs on her. What, is, what does Abraham do? Like, I've had what I thought was fresh meat. I no longer think it's fresh meat. This is how barbecue is to be done. Uh, we're going to move toward this. I've got a couple goats. I'm eyeing them. Just kidding. What does he do? I mean, it wasn't, if you're coming over to my house and we're going to have a barbecue, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to drive down to Rayleigh's and I'm going to get us some fresh meat that's wrapped in cellophane. <laughs> Abraham goes out and he starts poking cows. That's what it says. He found one that was tender. I mean, I guess that's what you do. He goes out and starts poking cows and he picks a cow and he looks at his chief butcher and says, I want him for dinner. And the man quickly prepares this cow. I mean, and, and then he, gives, and he hands them steaks. That's amazing. This is an amazing word. So this is a lavish, lavish meal. I mean, they are committed. 
Right? They are committed to making sure, to making sure that these three men feel welcomed. Another word you see over and over again is the word quickly. Right? Those are the first words he says to Sarah. He doesn't say hello. It's quick. <laughs> quick what? Make some bread. Cakes. I need cakes. And then he runs out, and what does the butcher do? He quickly prepares the meat. So what is that telling us? It says that he knows that these men are tired, that they're hungry. And so the, and so the whole family is working hard and working fast to meet some needs here. That's wonderful. It's wonderful being totally, totally selfless. The other thing to, to, to point out that I think is good for us as such busy Americans is the change of plans. The change of plans here that Abraham and Sarah seemingly take in stride. I'm sure he did not. I'm sure he had plans for the afternoon. I got my nap. I got to finish my nap. I got more work to do. Everything gets interrupted here and they just roll with it. This obviously took the rest of the day. The complete change in plans. We learn in the Bible that we can entertain angels without knowing it, Hebrews 13 says. And literally, this is what Abraham does here. He ends up entertaining angels. We also know that we can show hospitality to Jesus without knowing it, Matthew chapter 25. What the Bible means by that is not that Jesus is putting on a disguise and he's showing up at your house. What it means is that God is in control of everything. God is in control of everything. And so circumstances that come your way and people that come your way, God is sending them. God is sending them. See, we like our plans. Some of you don't. But for those of you who struggle with this and who a deviation from the plan is, is almost sinful. Remember, like me, you have your calendar, you've got your iCal, and you've got everything entered in, and interruptions can be difficult to handle. I'll have interruptions, and I'll, on the spot, enter them into my calendar just to cope. But we need to see them as divine interruptions. Divine interruptions, because who is sovereign and who is Lord over everything? Now, if you have that mindset, if you have that understanding that I've got my plans today, but the Lord's going to direct my steps. I've got my plans today, but God is in control and he may have a completely different plan for me. And so he's going to bring circumstances that I'm not going to be ready for. And he's maybe even going to bring people into my life that I'm not going to be ready for. But this is his providence and it is for my good. I need to respond to them in a godly way and not dismiss them. And some of you will find yourself doing that, that you're just so rigid that you will dismiss the divine interruptions that God brings your way. It could be as, as, as great as someone knocking on your door when you don't expect it. And there will be a godly response that you should have. Amen. And it may be as simple as a toddler tugging on your shirt while you're trying to get something done. So how do we handle these things? I see almost every day as an adventure. I just I have my plans, but I find that my plans rarely go as planned. I don't even know why I make them anymore. <laughs> they do not go as planned. And so many times, so many times I'll reflect on the past day and think of so many things that happened that I just never could have predicted. Some of them sweet, some of them painful, but all of them understanding from the hand of the Lord. And therefore, ultimately, sweet. 
for my good. Abraham gets that. He has a right understanding of the providence of God, that God is the Lord of history, that God is the Lord of circumstances, that that God is the Lord of everything that happens in, in your life. And so he responds in a good and righteous way. And then finally, you just see it at the end of verse 8 there. You, you see a, a desire on Abraham and Sarah's part, but most clearly here with Abraham to serve and not to be served. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. So this is not chauvinistic Abraham. This is not Abraham just running in and saying, hey, honey, you know, get cooking, you know, get your shoes off, get some food cooking and bring it out, expect it in 30 minutes and, and I'll let you know when we need something else. That actually would have been more traditional in this day. It would have been that the wife would have been in the kitchen cooking the food and the servants would have been bringing the food out to the the, the people who were eating and seeing if any needs were unmet. And then the man of the house would sit down and he would have conversation with the men. But do you see the humility of Abraham here? What's he? I mean, he's he's waiting on them. You picture him standing under the tree, right? The towel over his arm. I mean, this is what he's doing. He's got no selfish motive here. He says, I'm just going to let you guys, he's doing what he said he was going to do. Just wash your feet, okay, just rest, give you some food, give you some drink. I don't have some agenda. I don't want to start picking your brain. Hey, what's up with the flood? He's not going to start talking to him like that. He just waits on him and he serves him because he's there not to be served, but to serve. Even Jesus came and said, hey, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Abraham, the Bible calls him God's friend and he acts like God here. He comes in here. He is. He's serving. He's serving these people. So you put this together. This lavish meal, um, uh, or the, the 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 servant attitude, the the willingness to change plans and adjust. You have and you have a wonderful picture of hospitality, a wonderful picture of hospitality. Now verse nine. Now and following. Now we find out the reason. The reason these men are here. It's it's not Jesus was hungry. Okay. He's got a plan. He's got an agenda. And we find out real quickly why Jesus is here. They said to him, they said to Abraham, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. So here we go. We're going to get the reason for the visit. They, they haven't come for Abraham. They've come for Sarah. They've come primarily for Sarah. Which is why they, they bring her up. By the way, this, this would have been very rude in this culture. Unless you're Jesus, right? You do anything you want and it's good and right. Where's your wife? What do you mean, where's my wife? Not only that, they call her by name. Which would have also been offensive. Where is Sarah, your wife? But Abraham answers. He said that she's she's in the tent. So here's what here's what here's what Jesus is doing. Uh, uh, Sarah right now has been cooking the food. She's on the other side of you know, some canvas. You know, they're just on opposite sides of a, a tent wall here. Okay, so she could certainly hear the conversation that's going on. And so, what does she hear at this point? She hears her name, which would be a strange thing to hear in the conversation. It's not her husband saying the name, but one of these guests is saying. Her name. We don't even know if it, how they even know what her name is. So what is going to happen if you're Sarah at that point and you hear your name come up? What are you going to do at that point? You're going to eavesdrop. You're going to listen, right? 
You're going to start doing the dishes a little quieter. You still pretend you're doing something, but you're not really doing something. You're listening. You know, got the glass up against the wall. This is what Jesus wants because he's going to speak to Sarah. Right. He's going to deal with Sarah for the rest of this passage. So he he wants her. He wants her listening in. And so he he brings he brings her up and then he he says this. The Lord said. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Of course, right? But how does she respond? Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She doesn't believe it. She doesn't believe it. And so she laughs. And the Lord is going to respond. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Now that's interesting. That's interesting. So the Lord comes in. He says, okay, he's looking at Abraham. Okay, he knows Sarah can hear what he's saying. And he says, listen, I'm going to come back a year from now and your wife's going to have a, a baby boy. Now, why is that significant? Well, a long time ago, God came to Abraham and told him, you're going to have a son. And then he's been he's been reminding Abraham of that promise over the years, because how many years have gone by since that promise was originally given? Almost 30, almost 30. And so God keeps coming to Abraham and reassuring him, saying, listen, I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. My word is my bond. Just trust me. Be faithful. I will be faithful. And he reminds him over and over and over again that I'm going to keep my promise. But 30 years is a long time. Some of you know what it's like to have promises of God and to, and to struggle to believe that God is going to keep those promises. It's hard to wait on the Lord. Have you waited 30 years? Have you waited 30 years? Now, all of God's reassurance up until this point has been directly to Abraham and indirectly to Sarah, Right? He's never appeared to Sarah. It's always when Abraham is out and he comes to Abraham and then Abraham surely comes home and tells his wife what the Lord said. But the the assurance is coming from the Lord indirectly to Sarah through Abraham. So what is the meaning of this visit? What is the Lord Jesus coming to do? He's coming to directly assure Sarah that he's going to keep his promise and tell her that a year from now you're going to have a son. And when she first hears it, she cannot believe it. And so she laughs. But how does it say that she laughed? To herself. 
she laughed to herself. So Abraham doesn't know that she laughed. And Sarah doesn't know that anyone else knows that she laughed because she laughed to herself. That's why you laugh to yourself. You laugh to yourself because you don't want people to know that you're laughing, right? You know what that looks like. It's just the... I'm trying to hold it back. I don't want to let this out. For some of you, it's not even that. Because sometimes you can't even let it out that far. You're having a conversation with somebody. They say something. They do something. And inside, you just start cracking up. But it would be very inappropriate for you to even (laughs) do one of these. So your lip is bleeding now, right? And you're just trying as hard as you can what you're laughing to yourself. And the whole reason of laughing to yourself is so no one else knows what's going on. How does the Lord respond to her? First, he says this. Why did Sarah laugh? Oh, we're dealing with someone special here, aren't we? Have your Sarah, you're freaking out. Because she laughed to herself. It wasn't out loud. Here, here she is still listening and she cracks up. And then she hears the Lord say, Hey, why'd your wife just laugh? And Abraham's like, I didn't hear anything. And the Lord's like, I did. I'm omniscient. I have really good hearing. So why did she laugh, he says, and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now here's what he says. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. And Sarah shall have a son. This is a rhetorical question. He's not looking for an answer. He's making a statement. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. No is what he's saying. But Sarah's she's not believing it. What does she say? After I am... It's a funny description of herself and her husband. After I am worn out... I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Not old. Like, old. (laughs) He's 99. 99. I'm 89 years old. And we're going to chase a toddler around? So there's just, there's there's the physical aspect here. How is this even? This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And the promise came 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Here's what I want you to see what the Lord is doing. The, the Lord understands our frame. Psalm 103 says, He knows that we are but dust. And He comes and He, he, he gives words to us that we need. And words that are meaningful. And words that are precious. And words that are tender that we need to hear. He understands that we're going to struggle. He understands that we're going to have doubts. He understands there's going to be remaining sin. He understands the despair. He understands the discouragement. And He's not a God who just delights to sit back and watch us squirm. He's a God who comes tenderly to His people and reassures them through words that He's going to keep His promises. So here you have Sarah, 30 years ago, her husband comes home and says, listen, we're going to have a baby. 
Fifteen years go by, there's no baby. What does she do? She sins grievously against the Lord. She finagles. She figures out a way to get her husband a son because she does not believe that God is going to open her womb. After she does this, she's stricken with despair. She knows she's sinned grievously against the Lord. And then her husband is reminded again that no, she's going to have a son. But now another 13 years go by and still no son. So there is the, there is, is anything too hard for the Lord? There's the how could God come and, and, and as an 89 year old woman make me physically have a child. And then there's the, is anything too hard for the Lord? How could the Lord forgive me? How could the Lord overlook my sin? I've squandered his plan. I've squandered his promises. How could the Lord want me? It's impossible. How could he possibly come for me? So the Lord says, Why are you laughing? And then he obviously speaks to her doubt, right? He says, is anything impossible for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you see the pattern there? So he makes his promise. He says, I'm going to come, I'm going to come back in a year and she's going to have a baby. And then she laughs. And, and, and then he says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he makes the promise again. This is how God works with his people. God makes these promises and we doubt the promises. We doubt the promises. We laugh. We laugh. I mean, we're good Christians. Make no mistake. We're good Christians and we would never say that something is too hard for God except the rock that he makes so big that no one can move it. (laughs) But other than that, I mean, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. We know that. And, and every Christian affirms that. But there is a difference between an intellectual assent to some truth and actually believing it. If you would have asked Sarah, you know, a week before this, if you would have held up the Sunday school flashcard, is anything too difficult for the Lord? She would have known what was on the back. And she would have told you, no, nothing, nothing is too difficult for our God. Nothing. He can do anything. But then when the promise comes to her, she says, not possible. Because we struggle. This is faith. We struggle to take God at His word. To really believe that His word is true. And when the rubber meets the road with Sarah, and she hears this promise that says, listen, your dreams are going to be fulfilled a year from now. A year from now, you're going to be holding the baby boy you've always wanted. I know it's been a long time coming. You're 99 years old. But it's going to come. And a year from now, I'm going to come back and I'm going to visit you and your family's going to be bigger. You're going to have a baby. And her impulse reaction is no way. No way. Not physically possible. Not spiritually possible. 
Why would I receive this gift? How could I be seen as worthy of this gift? And so she laughs it off. She laughs it off. Derek Kidner says that God roots his call for Sarah to believe on the fact that he can do anything. And that he has spoken this promise in his word and that therefore her faith can literally rest assured that he will bring it to pass. Until we are absolutely trusting that God is in control of everything. It makes no sense for us to trust in him completely. So what is the basis of trusting in God completely? The basis for trusting in God completely is believing that He is in control of everything. Therefore, I can trust Him completely. Remember, our hope in God is not the the, uh, 21st century American, the future is uncertain, but I hope it goes a certain way. That is not biblical hope. Biblical hope is I know I know things are going to go a certain way because God says things are going to go a certain way. And so my hope is anchored in that and I have hope. So the basis of it is I believe God is in control of everything. So there's a a principle, a principle here. Are you ready for it? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's it. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Do we believe that? Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Think of the different doubts that we have that are rooted in a disbelief that God is is as great and as good as He actually is. Can God really love me? Yes, God can really love you. That is not too hard for God. Can God really save me? Yes, God can save you. Can God really keep me? Yes, God can really keep. Can God really? I find this a lot. Can God really want me? Yes. Wanting you is not too hard for God. He wants you. You're his son. You're his daughter. He wants you. Why would, he, why would he ever discard you? Why would he ever abandon you? Why would he ever throw you away? Why would he ever walk away from you? He wants you. Loves you. Nothing, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it. Here you go. This is the chain reaction of sin. Okay, James 1 talks about this. This is how sin works, right? Sin is like a snowball. And if you don't stop it, you don't mortify it, you don't confess it, you don't turn from it, you don't repent from it, it doesn't just go away. It does, it does not just go away. You have to deal with sin. And if you don't deal with sin, and if you don't fight sin, it will not just go away. It may go dormant and then open a can at some point. 
This is not how sin works. It must be dealt with. It's like a chain reaction. And so you see this with Sarah. What is first? She doesn't believe. Then she laughs. And now she lies. So so what she laughed? Why did she laugh? Because she didn't believe. She believed that there are things that are too hard for God, like loving me and keeping this promise to me and wanting me and making me have a child at 89. That is not possible for God. So she did not, but God's word says that it's true. So that is sinful. That is sinful. That's not to be pitied. That's to be condemned. If God says it, we believe it. So she didn't believe, which caused her to laugh. And now she gets caught in her laughter. Oh, she laughed to herself. You can't do anything to yourself in front of God. He knows everything. He knows your hearts right now. Right now, he knows your heart. Some of you are like, I'm hiding stuff. No, you're not. This is so foolish, right? You are not hiding anything. Well, he does. Well, he may not know, and she may not know, but he knows. Have you not done this? Compartmentalized your life and think, well, if they don't know about it. I'm sure God doesn't know about it. Like Adam and Eve running in the garden. We look and we're just like, oh, so funny. What immature believers. Like we do that all the time. I've got, I've got closets full of fig leaves, right? <laughs> trying to cover, trying to conceal, trying to hide. And not dealing with sin before a holy and righteous God as if he doesn't know of my sin. Not believing that the delaying of dealing with my sin is only heaping up trouble for myself. But what am I convincing myself? Well, God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God, God can't see this. Well, God knows exactly, exactly what's going on in Sarah's heart. So she hears him say, you know, why did she laugh? And so she comes out. I picture her maybe a bit indignant and she denied it. Hold on one minute, because she's very certain that she didn't make a sound. She didn't make a sound so she can ride this one into the sunset. I did not laugh because no one sees my heart. No one knows what I do in secret. So she comes out. She she denies it because she was afraid. And then he said, I love this. No, but you did laugh. Now, I think what the Lord is saying here is no. You're right. You didn't laugh out loud. But you laughed. You you don't argue with Jesus. He always has the last word. Right? You all want last words when you're in an argument. It's human nature, right? It's one of your objectives when you're in an argument with someone. Your objective is to have the last word. They're walking away from you and the door is about to close and the sense of urgency comes on you before the door is actually closed that you get one more word in their ears before they're on the other side of the door because there'll be a sense of victory in that. And our words are great and our words are wonderful and they'll bring healing and they'll fix the situation or they'll drive home our point and so we're quick to, we're quick to say them. So she tries to do this with God. No, this does not work. So she comes out and says, actually... Lord, I didn't laugh. And he looks at her and says, actually, (laughs) you did laugh. And then look at her response. Oh, wait, there isn't one. (laughs) There's no 
There's no response. There's no quip. There's, there's no comeback. It's omniscient. You can imagine his piercing gaze when he looked at her. He knew her heart and he said, yes, you did. And you know what I'm talking about. You laughed and you didn't believe. But what is actually happening here? I mean, God has come down to eat with Abraham and his family. You see, you see Sarah's sin. You see God deal with it. And yet you see all this grace. You see all this grace. Because why is he here? He's, he's here to, to directly assure Sarah. You think that God didn't know that it was going to roll out like this? You think he was surprised? Oh, well, she's being kind of snotty. I think maybe I won't reassure her. He comes down, he makes a promise. He says, listen, I'm going to come back in a year and you're going to have a baby. She laughs at him. And he looks at her and he says, get the crib ready. Now those words would, when she knew who she was dealing with, now you see the whole point of this visit. And the, the, the melting of her heart. We, we know that he was effective in assuring her because Hebrews 11, 11 says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Why? What changed? It was this right here. It was this point. It was the Lord coming down to have lunch with her. To have lunch with her. To reassure her, knowing her frame, knowing that she is but dust. And I know the promise has come indirectly. I know you've sinned grievously. I know it's been 30 years, but friends, this is our God. And he comes down and sits down and has lunch with her and says, listen, you can get the room ready. Get the get the blue paint out. Get some stuffed animals in here. Go ahead and, and build the crib. Take the parenting classes. Do what you need to do. I'm telling you, when I come back in a year, you're going to have a cute little cuddly baby boy in your arms. I'm saying it. That settles it. And Scripture, te- and scripture tells us that, that she had faith from this moment on. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? It means she believed God's word. She believed him. Like Abraham now, she said, oh, I really am going to have a baby. He really does love me. He really does want me. He really isn't throwing me out. He really isn't discarding my faithless self. He really is faithful. He really is patient. He really is kind. I'll close with just a couple thoughts. We'll save the next section for next week. But let me speak specifically to those of you who are husbands. Thinking about Abraham and Sarah. Husbands, know that your wives are in good hands. Your wives are in good hands. 
Because you see what God has done. And husbands, this is what you are. This is what Abraham was. You, you are an instrument of God's love and grace to your wife. You're an instrument of God's love and grace to your wife. But that's it. That's a big deal. But that's it. You're not God. You're, you're not Jesus. You're an instrument that God uses. Abraham was an instrument that God used. So God spoke to Abraham and God assured Abraham, so okay, go tell your wife and encourage her and, and lead her. And there's, there's this direct dealing with Abraham and then Abraham was to go and to be this instrument, this instrument for, for God to his wife. But then you see that, they, and husbands, you understand, God does not just deal with your wife through you. Your wife belongs to the Lord. She belongs to the Lord. And he will deal with her. And he will love her. And he will nurture her. And he will be gracious to her. And he will bring encouragement. And he will remind her of his promises. And the way that he will do it is in the way that he did it, in the way that he does it. And it is by his word. By his word. I mean, Abraham said the same thing to Sarah. You're going to have a baby. But it rung a little different when God said it, didn't it? Over the last year and a half, I saw God do this over and over again in my marriage with my wife. Many of you know through one of the most wonderful, one of the most difficult seasons of our entire lives, our entire marriage, as we uh, waited and, and, and waited for the, the end of our adoption of our baby daughter. And there were times where you read scriptures like it feels like the earth is giving way beneath you and it literally felt like we were going to be swallowed up by the earth. And having fears and having feelings and having emotions that just felt unbearable and impossible, impossible even from God to be dealt with. And I can remember in at times, and it's poor job, I'm sure I did it at times, trying to pass on Scripture and trying to minister and pray for and love my wife. But it was so clear to me who took care of my wife. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. And you know how He did it? By His Word. Amen. By His Word. A year and a half later, now these scriptures are all over our house. <laughs> Why are these scriptures up all over our house? Because these, these scriptures represent the assurances that God brought in our time of need. So what did the Lord do? And I know she, she could testify and, and, and say it the same way. The Lord did what He did with Sarah and He would come down and set up a table for two over and over again with my wife and sit across from the table from her and remind her of His Word and of His faithfulness. And we would struggle and we would doubt and we would falter and then God would, would bring His Word in with great force. So that we'd be undone in a good way and, and assured again before Him. You think God loves His children? You think God loves His people? God is love. 
We throw around phrases like that and so often have no idea what it means or assign meaning to it that's not true. But understand when we talk about God being love, that there is nothing like God's love for His people. There is nothing like the love of Jesus Christ for His bride, the church. It is incomparable. It's indescribable. It's unfathomable. His love is that great. And another testimony here of it again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. And the good that you've been, we so often discount. I feel myself, Lord, so often complaining in the middle of being blessed. And I feel terrible about this, God. You've been so good. We really can do everything without complaining and grumbling because we really don't have anything to complain or grumble about. But Lord, we can be faithless and we can doubt. You know that we're weak. You know we're but dust. So God, we're so thankful that you don't ultimately just leave us to struggle, but that the struggle is good and that in the struggle you you reassure us and, and that your promises all are are going to be kept. Every last one. Every word of your law will be fulfilled. Everything, God. And so why wouldn't we delight in your law? Why wouldn't we meditate on it day and night? Why wouldn't we be careful to do everything written in it? So God, we, uh, we beat our chest before you again and cry out for mercy. We ask you to be merciful to us. We ask you to keep your grace and your mercy extended toward us. We know we do not deserve this. We know that we are not worthy of this, but we, 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 we know we still have it. We're thankful and grateful. So be glorified, God. Be glorified and, and lifted up as we remember the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, by which we've become friends with you, your, your sons and your, your daughters. We've been adopted into your family. As we eat this bread, as we drink this juice, may what it is a symbol of rise up within us. And may we remember again the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior and treasure, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in His name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.